Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Scale, our brand new series on the do's and don'ts for rapidly scaling startups. Today, we're bringing the last episode in the series, but rest assured that we've saved the best for last. A conversation with HubSpot's VP of Marketing, Megan Keeney Anderson. Megan has been at HubSpot for eight years now, which quite frankly feels like a lifetime in the world of startups. And over the course of that time, she's seen HubSpot grow from a small, plucky startup into a billion dollar household name. It's natural then that we want to talk to Megan all about customer acquisition. Just how did they do it and what marketing tactics helped them get there. As the host of HubSpot Growth Show, Megan is also an accomplished podcast host herself. So we thought it was time to hear her on the other side of the booth. So let's jump right in. Megan, welcome to the show. You and I have been sort of trading uh, content marketing and broader sort of tactics and, and strategies for the last few years. So excited to finally have you on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, gotten a lot out of our conversations. I'm glad we get to kind of put it to air now. So we, we, we can have it in public. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, maybe to kick things off, you wrote a kind of a landmark piece last year called What Happened to the Internet? And it was a real deep dive into the customer acquisition challenges that are facing online businesses currently. I mean, what was the kind of the, the thesis there and what kind of drove you to write it? Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I was on a soapbox for sure. But I, you know, I think that there is a really massive shift happening right now in the way that information gets distributed and people consume it online. So, and I actually think it's a bit of a pendulum swing from where the internet began. I think that when the internet first kind of came about, it was, you know, the promise was that it was this grand meritocracy and anyone with a good idea could get found online for free. And that birthed inbound marketing, it birthed content marketing, it birthed a surge in SEO and a bunch of really interesting things. But over time, consumers, you know, they got a little bit overwhelmed by all of those options and all of that content. And so the web actually started to consolidate a little bit and aggregate information more and be more of a filter to that information than it had previously been. So today, where we're at is... There's this uh, writer and developer named Andre Stoltz, who who I really like, and he's done some research and he estimates that that Google and Facebook in particular, just their own properties alone, have direct influence over about 70% of all internet traffic, um, which is crazy. Yeah. We're talking 2 trillion searches running through Google every year. You know, Facebook today has more active users in a single month than the entire internet did in 2010. And so what's happening is there's sort of this consolidation of the way that we find information online to really two, three major giants, Amazon, Facebook, Google. And that's not inherently bad, but that does change a lot about the way that we operate. And it also has ramifications for, you know, the way our societies work and the way our businesses work. And so Noting that change, we should be thinking very differently about how we're going to market. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite interesting because it's almost like we've gone back to the days of CompuServe rather than the open internet. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I I think we have to kind of relearn a lot of things and we have to decide if this is how we want things to be in the future internet. I think the internet is going to go through, uh, you know, dozens of phases. We've seen... A number of those phases already when the internet became much more of a mobile first platform or arena, that was one major change and we all evolved to that. So I think, you know, internet will 
rise and fall and go through different iterations. And our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt. Yeah, because I mean, that's obviously the interesting thing for, for us is if, if the big three, Facebook, Google, Amazon, are taking back their real estate and closing off these kind of primary acquisition channels that so many businesses, you know, began to rely on and now realizing, you know, you have to pay to play or, you know, you're not going to be yep. able to sort of get people from those properties back to your own property. How does that impact, you know, for instance, how does that impact your team at HubSpot and, and the work you guys are doing? Yeah. So, you know, I think that we really changed our strategy to adapt to these giants, right? I mean, if there are only a few algorithms pulling the strings, you better know those algorithms and you better be able to get into them and still surface on them in a world where they control much more of the real estate. So here's a couple of things that we've done. First and foremost, we actually split our content strategy in two because there is content that is discovered through search and there is content that is discovered through discovery. Google and Facebook, basically, 70% of all internet traffic. And the thing is, the rules that work for one do not work for the other. And so we used to sort of write a blog post, try to promote it out through all the social channels, hope that it ranked on, on Google. Today, we're much more in, instructive about the type of content that we're writing that is designed to get discovered directly through search and the type of content that we're creating that is meant to get passed from person to person. And those two strategies are very different. So different that we've actually split the content team in two and we've merged our content team that focuses on how-to content and content that, that's really well-suited for search with our SEO team. And so what they do is they start every month with a search insights report and they figure out where's the green space? Uh, how do we actually go after terms that are relevant to our business in a way that will we'll get discovered not just on the search and results page, but in some of the new vehicles that Google has? And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Sure. And then the rest of the content team, we focused on how do you create content that's designed to be passed through word of mouth and sharing and social triggers and and what are the characteristics of that? The two teams don't, there's no thick wall between the two teams, but their goals are distinct. And that has allowed us to make a lot of progress in each of these areas. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's quite interesting as well that you're you're saying that your SEO team now has a content team of now sort of merged together. Because I think we're seeing a lot of people talking about that, you know, the need for, you know, SEO to actually be embedded with content. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's so hard to rank for anything because there's so much content out there. You have to get really, really precise and really aligned with SEO before you even write the thing. And SEO is more than about identifying, hey, these are the keywords we're going to write on. It is about the way you structure that content, the way that you structure your entire content platform, your website, your blog. It is about everything from the, the code that sits behind it to the metrics that go into decisions around it. And so if those two teams aren't planning together, yeah. you're really going to be kind of playing catch up where content creates something and then SEO tries to optimize it. So we found a lot of value. We've seen a lot of value in merging those two teams. And so what does the other team then look like? The, the one that I suppose is it's, it's almost trying to be more viral, right? Yeah. So the other team is all social channels, uh, mm -hmm. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, podcasting efforts, and what we call executive content or thought leadership, which mm -hmm. is placed or owned articles that, you know, they're not going to rank on search for anything, but they are 
they're your what happened to the internet post. They are the the soapbox post that we feel like the idea is powerful enough to be spread from person to person. And we put a lot of distinct research into that and what motivates people to share and, you know, trying to stay close to the pulse of where discussion online is going. Sure. And, and, and with to, founders like Dermesh and Brian, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> you, you know, they have always, like it, it is kind of core to the DNA of HubSpot that you guys would continue to share that thought leadership. Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's, you know, that is a distinct type of writing, a distinct type of content creation than you would do for for search, which is really sure. still driven very much by how to practical advice content. Mm-hmm. In terms of the actual platforms like like Google and Facebook, we've talked about this a little bit before, but are you sort of saying to companies, yes, you should engage there, but you just need a very different strategy? I mean, I think you talked before about actually thinking about Facebook as its own sort of, not quite a walled garden, but its own island in, in many ways and sort of engage with people over there rather than trying to get them back to your properties. Is, is yeah, that the, the sort of top level advice? Yeah, it's absolutely a walled garden, first of all. I think, you know, again, the old advice used to be publish something on your site and then use Facebook or social channels to promote that out, trying to get the click-through back. The click-throughs are gone. They're mm. not coming back. Uh, and, and you know, there, there are great companies like Buffer that have done a ton of research on this where they're seeing social really fall off as a referral source, but engagement on social is not falling off. In fact, it's rising. And so the shift in, in strategy then has to be, okay, how do you drive engagement within those platforms and how do you grow an audience within those platforms? And then once you have that audience, what do you actually do with it? And so I think the good news on that is that I think the conversions are coming. I think that we've done some really interesting experiments with with Facebook for a moment. We've done some interesting experiments with Facebook Messenger and using that as a way to drive conversions mm-hmm. without ever having anybody have to leave Facebook and go back to our site to do it. And we've been able to, you know, drive conversions there at a fraction of the cost uh, as we do for for other conversions and just write about it the same quality as we have from from other lead sources. Uh, so I think it is early days for converting offsite. I think that there are a lot of kinks to work out still, but anytime that you have a burgeoning source of audience and activity, you better believe that the way to convert that audience and the way to drive an action off of it is not far behind. Uh, I think it's probably most mature in in social because mm-hmm. of things like Messenger. I think, you know, we've, we've run some interesting experiments with podcasts. And then also, I think the thing to remember is not every space, not every content effort has to drive to an immediate conversion. There is a lot of sense in building an audience for the sake of that brand level affinity that will then stay with that person and drive a conversion in a different way at a different point. That stuff is harder to measure. It makes people more uncomfortable, but there is absolutely value in that. Yeah, it's 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 harder to put in a deck and bring it to your exact team to say that, you know, we're, we're doing this, but it's hard to show the, the actual dollar value just right now. Yeah. But I think it's interesting what you're saying. We're, we're not like we're saying this as well, which is, you know, not only is the, the sort of the amount of engagement, shall we say, at, on social platforms going up, but the level of engagement is off the charts in terms of, you know, I'd say on Facebook, the kind of content that we can publish on Facebook about ourselves and things we're doing. And it gets huge levels of engagement mm-hmm. and discussion, which, you know, I, I think, you know, even on our own blog uh, would, would not get maybe the same level of, of, of engagement and discussion. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to get better across the board at 
being able to go where the audience is and convert where they are. So even when it comes to Google, right? Mm -hmm. Google is probably the most direct source of traffic and conversion into our site anywhere. It certainly is. But they're doing more and more to keep eyeballs on the Google search engine results page as opposed opposed to passing it through. So the invention of snippets, taking over more and more of the real estate on the search engine page. And so we've done some interesting experiments to try to understand how do you uh, engage an audience and not have those sort of changes to Google search engine results impact your bottom line with your content. So, you know, we were really nervous about snippets when they first came out. You know what I mean? When Every, I everyone was. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were we were terrified because we, we get a lot of our traffic from organic search. Yeah. And so, you know, we we're like, oh, this is this is bad news because people are gonna read the snippet and they're not gonna click through anymore. And so after that moment of panic, the team got themselves together and tried to channel it into something productive and we ran a few experiments. And, you know, we found actually that uh, we could create a repeatable process for getting into the snippet, um, which I'm happy to talk about. And then once we did get into the snippet for the high volume keywords, we picked a selection of like 30 high volume keywords that we were already ranking number one for. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to see what would happen if despite that number one ranking, we also managed to get some of our content into the snippet. And we found that the CTR to our website increased by more than 114%, even when we previously already ranked number one, just by getting into that snippet. And And that's a meaningful difference. Do you think that's because basically by putting you in the snippet, Google is almost endorsing your page? Because I mean, I know I find myself when I see the snippet, I look at which result has this come from in the, you know, and it's invariably one of the top three. Uh, And and that's the one I click on. Yeah, I think that's an interesting angle to it. I have always just chalked it up to moving. Everybody's moving really fast and being in the top spot, whether it's a snippet or a listing, is is the most okay. advantageous, right? Yeah. And the the thing is that snippets push everything else down. Of course. Um, and ads have been moved over to the center pane, mm-hmm. and that pushes everything else down. So, you know, we used to coach people to do everything that they could to get to that number one spot, and we still do. But, gosh, you're you're two thirds of the way down the page, even at number one now. Yeah. So. I think we're going to see more of that. I think the good news on that is at least to this point, we have still seen a lift by playing that game and trying to get into that vehicle that Google's created. Okay, so what's your formula then for for getting the snippet? You know, it's it, it comes down to structure, right? Mm-hmm. So the simple answer is have a clear H1 and H2 headers in your content. It is uh, ensuring that you've got, you know, where appropriate that you have numbered or bulleted lists beneath that. It is cleaning up your code. So making sure that you are using the right kind of tags beneath your content, that your code isn't isn't messed up because there's not too many like divs or, or random things that have gotten in there mm-hmm. and choosing the right things to go after, right? So knowing which topics you have a good shot at for getting into the snippet because you've got the most relevant content on it. There is actually a really good, the team, if people are interested, there's a HubSpot put together like a really good instructional guide, uh, you know, ungated, totally free to the public on exactly what we did with with screenshots of our code and things like that to to claim the snippets that we have. So that's really interesting. I think, uh, you know, if you're not in the snippet, you're, you're going to be quite a way down the page. But it's also, yeah. I think, really important that, yeah, don't try and get the snippet with something that's on page two currently. 
Yeah, makes sense. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Uh, looking beyond algorithms for a, for a moment, uh, I suppose one of the biggest trends that marketers have had to deal with over the, the last five years has been the sort of rise in, in average uh, CAC or customer acquisition costs. Mm-hmm. I mean, some estimates have risen by over 50% in the last five years. What's been your most cost-effective marketing channels? So, you know, it's interesting because even as as CAC has risen, content and organic is still just a behemoth channel for us. I mean, it brings in the lion's share of our traffic and it brings in that traffic in a totally free compounding way. So despite the rising costs, that is still king for us in terms of just, you know, when we look at our performance, what is actually the, the biggest uh, muscle behind our growth that we've done. Now, yeah. here's the other thing though. We found, we did again, some research into how people discovered us. We did some research into how people discover companies and we have seen a shift there over the last few years. And that shift is that more and more other customers are playing a bigger role in driving business for HubSpot and for for every company. So I think if you asked me three years ago, how people first discover HubSpot, I would say they read our blog or they attend our academy classes, or maybe they talk to a helpful salesperson who who reached out to them. Today, it is by and large that they heard about us through another customer. Uh, So, you know, I think that that can be a little bit scary for marketers because word of mouth is like, (laughs) how do you control that? Right? How do I predict that? How do I, you know, put that into a report? and communicate it to my executive team. But there are a lot of things you can do as a marketer to try to drive word of mouth. Mm-hmm. The first obvious thing is just create a really good end-to-end customer experience, remove all the friction, make sure that it's not just that your product is good, but your buying experience is good and that people enjoy it. But beyond that, there are, you know, I think it's worth identifying who are the people that are most successful on your product or service 
and have are the happiest mm -hmm. and trying to empower them to write reviews, to share, incentivize them in one way or another to talk about their good experience. I think direct-to-consumer companies do a really good job of this uh, on, on the B2C side. So yep. if you think about like any subscription service, so Stitch Fix or, I'm sorry, I'm going to name a bunch of American mm. companies. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> Care of for, for multivitamins, any of the, Glossier, any of these companies that sort of sell products directly to consumers and not through a, um, a retailer, they've gotten really good at the word of mouth thing because they know that that's a huge driver. So for example, when they send out boxes, they're including the person's name on the on the bottle of shampoo they send or stickers or things that can be used to take a picture on Instagram and share your social proof. And so we've gotten better, I think, as marketers at driving, finding happy, successful customers and enabling them to spread the word, which is going to be more and more helpful as these costs of customer acquisition continue to rise and we need to enlist other people to market on our behalf. Yeah. The nice thing is, you know, your customers are going to be better at marketing your company than any marketer you could ever hire. And I mean, you've, you've written before that your customers are your biggest growth opportunity. So, I mean, that's, that's some examples of, of how other people have done it. How, how do you structure customer marketing at, at HubSpot or is, you know, is there an mm -hmm. actual team that, that, that looks after that or is it kind of like goes across cross-functional? Yeah, uh, we have a, a distinct team for customer marketing. And then uh, across the board, all the marketing teams have a goal, for example, to uh, I think this year, you know, we have a target we're trying to hit in terms of the number of customer stories that we can surface in our content. And so we're all trying to play a role in celebrating customers and giving them a good experience. Uh, Darmesh last summer launched in the company, he sort of introduced this this thing that we call the customer code, which is basically aspirational document for the kind of company we want to be. And, you know, we do really well on some of those things, but we we fail miserably on others. So it's kind of a public way of 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 giving us a metric to try to strive for for the best customer experience possible. But to answer your question directly, we have a customer marketing team within that team. They are focused on streamlining communications to customers. So they're not getting seven emails from different parts of our company in the span of a week. Mm -hmm. They have a portion that focuses on customer advocacy. So how do we, again, find those customers who are happy and enlist them in and be in a reference in our sales program, in writing reviews for HubSpot, in sharing their experience and otherwise sort of continue their, their success with HubSpot and help to talk about it. And then we have a group that focuses on enablement of customers. So things like our user groups and making sure that we're creating the right content out of our academy to address the the top calls into support and the biggest customer points of confusion, things like that. Switching back to uh, content and content is a, sort of a, an acquisition channel. Curious what sort of changes you've seen in content over the past number of years. I mean, you mentioned there you know, the, the, the snippet advice you have, it's, it's ungated. You know, we're seeing a lot more people saying yeah. things should be ungated. Like what are, what are the other trends you're, you're seeing in terms of the, I suppose, not just content production, but actually using content to, to, uh, for customer acquisition? Yeah, I think we went through this stage as an industry where it was just heavily focused on volumes of content, mm -hmm. right? The answer to everything was put a blog post on it, you know, like, <laughs> and not just one blog post, but seven blog posts reframed slightly differently, all on the same topic. Uh, we could not create enough content in sort of the early days of content marketing. 
And I think one of the big changes beyond some of the changes to discovery is that, we, you know, I think at least we've found that you can actually get more traffic with less content if you're smart about it. Mm -hmm. So we found in our own history that we had been really competing against ourselves because we would have multiple pieces of content that were disconnected on our site, all ranking for the same search query and, you know, stealing stealing search traffic from each other and, and make, you know, it's, it's no good to have four pieces of content that are, you yeah. know, below seven on, or eight yeah. on the, on the search you, engine results. You need to be clear page. with Google as to what you want to rank. Yeah. So we were confusing all the algorithms and that yeah. was a result of just, you know, 10 years of content and new mm -hmm. people coming in and adding to the mix. And so we went in 2017, actually, we hit a bit of a, a plateau in our traffic. Uh, we had for years just always been going up and to the right. And in 2017, it kind of caught up to us. And so we, over the course of that year, really unpacked what was going on. And some of it was the changes to search behavior and uh, content consumption and getting into snippets and things like that. But a lot of it was actually cleaning out our content. So we restructured the blog. We created a list of topics that have, you know, over 15,000 search queries a month. And we made those sort of pillar topics, like our most essential topics. And then we restructured internal linking on our site to build these clusters around those topics. So we're a lot clearer to Google about what is the canonical piece of information and what is the supporting piece of information. The other thing we did was we found all duplicative content and we unpublished and redirected it to mm. the best piece that we had. We went back and we systematically updated content that was getting heavy traffic, but was getting outdated. And so we refreshed all of that. We created clear conversion paths. And through that hygiene, we cut out scores of content that was just littering the internet and got a lot more precise about the paths that through which people come to our site and got a lot higher value with the experience that they were getting when they got there. Uh, and it made a huge difference. I mean, broke through that plateau. I've seen some of the best growth that we've ever had um, over the last couple of years in our organic traffic and in sort of the consumption of our content. Uh, so I think being really intentional, going back and doing some hygiene and moving away from this, this fallacy that you have to just create endless amounts of content and become a content farm in order to, to get any traffic. Although I think content marketers, and I'll be as guilty of this as anyone, the, as I said, the impulse is kind of to, to publish and to publish new things. How did you win over the team or even, you know, other, other stakeholders in terms of, hey, we're going to actually publish less, but we're going to get more traffic? Yeah, well, here's the thing. In a given month, 70% of our traffic comes from old content. Yeah. So, you know, that's great. It shows the power of content and the power of, you know, compounding interest of SEO because from day one, you know, we just entered March. Day one, we know we're going to have 70% of the traffic that, that we need to get without having to write a single word. And so, you know, when you look at your team, and we're not unique in that, right? Everybody no. who's been creating content for any given period of time probably has that same phenomenon. And if you look at your team and 100% of them are focused on new content, and that's really only about, you know, 30% of the traffic you're getting in a given month and no one is focused on the old stuff and no one is focused on the structure and and the experience of that content, that's a mess, right? So it, it, it wasn't that hard to convince the team. 
in fact, I wasn't even the one to do it. It was, you know, members of the content teams themselves who noticed this trend and wanted to try a different approach to it. And it paid off. No, absolutely. It, it really is an eye opener when you when you start to look at it that way that, you know, you're you're literally putting 100 percent of your resources into 30 percent of, yeah. of your traffic. And every single team does it. Yeah. Every team does it. Because guilty, we're guilty all as charged. Yeah. <laughs> no, here's here's the thing, though, John, like I think that 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 strategy actually works on the other form of content strategy. I think it works on the awareness stuff. Right. Sure. You want it doesn't work well for Google. Mm-hmm. But it works for social and for podcasting and for all the offsite stuff that is spread through discovery. You want to be fresh with that. You want to be always trying new things and reinventing the playbook. That is where you should focus your new content discover your, your new yeah. content creation. Megan, we could chat about this for hours, but uh, I will <laughs> I will sort of wrap things up with with one uh, one final question, which is you know what additional channels are opening up right now that you're sort of getting excited about. Yeah, I I don't know. I love our job because it it's things do change all the time. And every single year I feel like there's something new to learn and and not just like a new tactic or a new like growth hack, but actually an entire new space of marketing. So obviously over the last few years messaging and live chat have become a, a bigger channel through which we communicate with prospects and customers. I think that is really interesting. There are a million ways we can mess that up. <laughs> there are a million ways that we can use that to make a better experience. And and ultimately, it's just the most immediate and direct way we have of connecting with customers, um, whether on-site through chat or off-site through Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or have you, what have you. So I think that's a really interesting space. And we've we found some interesting things there. I also, you know, obviously this is a little meta, but I think podcasting is really exciting right now. Mm-hmm. I think that Spotify recently acquired Gimlet and Anchor in sort of a landmark acquisition that I think has a lot of implications for the way that podcasts get discovered and the way that advertising works on podcasting and the way we sort of monetize a podcasting audience. I think that's really rich and and worth focusing in on right now. And, you know, we're also starting to play around with like editorial series on YouTube. And again, how do we we are very good at HubSpot at the search-driven content. I think that we're we're sort of getting excited now and learning more about how to create the sort of content that gets spread more virally. And so a lot of our focus right now is in, a lot of my focus right now is in things like like YouTube and editorial content to try to crack that that code a little bit too. Yeah, I think it's interesting because people are starting, like, you know, people go to YouTube to search for cert- certain things that they would never search for on Google. People are yeah. searching on Amazon for things that they would never search on Google. So how, how do you actually tap into that? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Amazon's a whole other beast we haven't talked about. <laughs> I love seeing that like Amazon and Google fight. So if you have an Amazon uh, extension in your browser, it will like overlay the search en- engine results on Google for products with like a drop down of <laughs> Amazon search results for that. <laughs> so they're, they're actually encroaching on each other's space and really fascinating ways. It's uh, definitely going to be lots of, uh, as you say, interesting new challenges and interesting new things to learn about. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, Megan, thanks a million, as always, for your time and, and for coming to chat to us on the show. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you, John. Thanks so much for having me. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.